Last week we began the first in our eight-week series on the book of Revelation. Now we're studying the first three chapters. Last week we had chapter one with the vision of the Son of Man, John had on his island of Patmos. Uh, and we're going to be studying the seven letters to the seven churches. Now I'm doing the first two, so I'll be preaching this week and I'll be preaching next week. So I will plan on having a Q&A session at the end of next week's sermon. I'll make it a little shorter. We'll have a Q&A at the end. So if you have any questions from tonight's sermon or any questions from next week's sermon, uh, please do ask them then. Just to make it a little bit easier for me, if you could limit yourself to uh, true or false questions, that would make my job uh, very easy. I, I, I find that works a little better for me. Um, now, I'll tell you what I really want you to gain from tonight's sermon. I want you to leave tonight. I want you to walk out the doors very mindful of the soothing and sobering presence of Christ in his church. Secondly, I want you to be captivated by the beauty of sound doctrine, sound doctrine and good works. And lastly, I want you to understand the tragedy that it is for a church to have lost their first love. How about I open up in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for this epistle from our Lord Jesus Christ himself to his church. I pray that Christ would be speaking to us right now. I pray that you would give soul church ears to hear. I pray that we, you would mature us greatly during this series. We pray this not because we deserve it, but because we dare to ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we know various amounts about the seven churches that are in Asia, that area of the world where these letters were written. Uh, we know varying amounts about them, but we know the most about Ephesus. And you probably know the most about Ephesus. Paul the Apostle, he visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey. He dropped off some friends in Ephesus. He had Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there. They ministered there. And then he came around on his third missionary journey, and he actually stayed there for a couple of years. Uh, and he was really busy during those couple of years. We hear... Um, from, in the book of Acts, it said all the people in um, all the Jews and Greeks in Asia heard the word of the Lord from Paul. He was teaching and preaching and debating and doing all this sort of stuff. Very prolific ministry. And while he was there, we have pretty good evidence to suggest there was about 250,000 people in Ephesus. Now, you might not be able to place that, either big or small. It's massive. So that would have put Ephesus at the fourth largest city in the world. At that stage. So it means Ephesus is actually a stronghold for the gospel as it heads out into the Gentile lands. So they had Paul the Apostle there witnessing and, and training. They also had the Apostle John there, the very one receiving the vision that we learned about last week. So, as best we know, John lived in Ephesus, the Apostle John. He was exiled by one of the emperors, but when that emperor died, John came back. Uh, and, he, and he was ministering in that church until he died at a really nice old age of his mid-90s. He died a, a peaceful, natural death. I'm sure John was really excited as he heard Christ talking about his beloved Ephesian church, the one he had a special relationship to. But I, I don't think it's just necessarily the fact that they're a very important church, the Ephesian church, uh, that they're first in this series. Uh, they're just actually, uh, there's a more straightforward reason for that. As the letter gets taken from Patmos, which is where John is, where he's exiled, breaking rocks most of the time, it gets taken to along the postal route. Ephesus is the first city from where John is on the postal route as they carry this letter of Revelation all around. So the first letter is the first place on the way. And that does beg the question, doesn't it? We're reading the letter to the church in Ephesus. 
We are, of course, not the church in Ephesus. So what are we doing reading their mail? Now, this, this reminds me of a story uh, before we bought our house in Glenorchy. There's a guy who lived there called Roz. Now, I don't really know anything about Roz. All my friends tell me, in the, uh, the, my neighbours, they tell me that Roz is a fairly dubious fellow and that he liked to hang around with a lot of other dubious fellows. Now, I can't necessarily get a read on this guy other than to say when we moved in our garage at the back, it did have like a secret compartment room at the back which did look pretty well set up to grow a specific kind of plant. Um, not daffodils for those of you who are wondering. He's um, a fairly dubious fellow. The reason I bring it up is because I get his letters all the time. I get his letters all the time. He's obviously a, a pretty frequent shopper at the hydroponic store down in uh, Glenorchy. But he's never been to service Taz, it seems like, because he hasn't changed his address. I get it. And I just want to rip these letters open and figure out what's going on with this guy. Um, my wife is always very quick to remind me there's about a two to five year jail sentence for mail tampering. Um, so what we do, we get the letters, we write not at this address, and we send them back. Is that what we do with this? Do we look at this letter? Do we go, okay, the church in Ephesus. Do we hold it up and go, that's about 2,000 years late, and the wrong hemisphere, that postie should be fired. Do we just write not at this address and send it back? Well, I'll put it to you that Jesus himself is calling this church to listen in. He's asking us to read the mail right now. If you read all the letters in one go, which I recommend you do, you'll find the same phrase repeating. It's like beating like a drum over and over. This is the phrase. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears. Now, you might not be a first century Ephesian, but you do have ears. And that means that this is for you. Jesus made these letters public so that from the time he first spoke them up until he returns to judge the living and the dead, these would be a benefit to all churches everywhere. That leads me to my first point here, the soothing and sobering presence of Christ in his church, the soothing and sobering presence of Christ in his church. Revelation 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's telling, isn't it, that the first revelation Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus is a self-revelation. Isn't it? He's revealing himself. He's, he's, he's saying, this is who I am. I hold all the angels in my right hand. I walk amongst your churches. I see what's going on over there. And it's telling because what they receive first from Christ, they actually need the most, don't they? They need Jesus. The church needs Jesus. It is true, isn't it, that if a church gets Jesus wrong, they actually will scarcely get anything right. It's like getting a a, a, a part of your two-page maths problem wrong on the first line, you could have brilliant working out afterwards, but you're doomed, aren't you? You'll never get it right. The very first thing Jesus does is draw the Ephesians' eyes towards himself. And that's actually not just the point of this letter. It's the point of the whole book of Revelation. We saw that last week. We see that in Revelation 1 verse 1, the very first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the thing that must soon take place. So the book of Revelation, Soul Church, it's Jesus revealed. If we read and study this book and all we end up is 
with a lot of charts and diagrams of Facebook arguments, then it's safe to say we've missed the mark completely, haven't we? Studying this book and studying these seven letters, it should lead us into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just doctrine that we study here. Of course, it's not less than doctrine. It's, it's more than doctrine. It's truth, but it's truth that draws us up into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what the letters are for. That's what the whole book is for. And so Jesus, to this church, is saying, look, this is what I want you to know. These are the words who hold of, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, you remember from last week, the seven golden lampstands, they're the churches. So Jesus is saying, I see exactly what's going on. I, I think that's actually the message translation of this passage. I think, I think it's, I know what you've done. It sounds a little scary in the message. But that's what he says. I know what's going on. I know what you've done. And the church needs to remember, every church needs to remember, that Christ is there. See, a church service is not like a funeral. See, in a funeral, everyone gets together to honour someone uh, and it's all very serious and sober. But the thing is, the person who's being on it has no idea what's going on at all because they're dead. The church service is not like a funeral because Jesus isn't dead. I think that's an obvious point. Jesus rose from the dead and he walks amongst his church. That's what he wants us to know. In fact, he wants us to know he walks amongst this church right here, this evening. I think it's very easy for a church to keep that doctrine, the, the presence of Christ, clear in its head when it's a small church, I think. Even, even small, not like this small, I'm talking small 10 to 20 people small. I think that's very easy. It's small, intimate fellowship. It's pretty simple. You've got the word fellowship, prayer. You can feed everyone with one meal. There's a great vibe about the thing. You know, it's very easy to keep Christ central in those circumstances. But then God blesses you. And then you grow. And then you need rosters. And then you need committees. And then you need to get a bigger building. And then you've got all this stuff on and you realise you've been so busy with church and you haven't had that much to do with Jesus. Jesus needs us to know he's here right now. And as I said at the start, Jesus' presence in the church should both soothe us and sober us up. It's soothing because no, we know no matter what happens, Jesus is here. That's good news. Jesus is here. He hasn't just left us here on this island in the middle of nowhere, on the bottom of the world, to try and make a fist of it until he returns eventually. He's here. He's with us right now. And so that's good because when we feel weary or when we feel frustrated or when another family that we really like leaves the church and that sucks or when we lose our pastor and that sucks too, we know we can be frustrated with these things but we must not despair. Because Jesus is here. And that should soothe our pain. But of course, when things start to go really, really well, and when the church grows, and when the music sounds really good, and the food is fantastic, and when we get a new pastor eventually, and they really like us, and we really like them, and it's love at first sight, we should rejoice in all these things, but we can't get distracted by them. Because Jesus is here. Only by understanding that Christ dwells in his church will we not be shipwrecked by our distresses or become boastful in our victories. 
And that leads me to my second point here, the beauty of hard work and sound doctrine. The beauty of hard work and sound doctrine. Let me read to you a few verses. Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and verse 6. I know your works. This is Jesus talking. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So you see there, Saul, the church in Ephesus, they get two major commendations. They get two sort of lots of congratulations from the Lord Jesus. There's hard work and there's sound doctrine. And we'll look at their hard work first. Look at the words Jesus uses for these people. Toil, patient endurance, not growing weary, bearing up, enduring patiently. That's how Jesus describes the saints in Ephesus. The Ephesian church was a gathering of saints in a pagan country. The Ephesians themselves were very religious people. Uh, we see that there is a temple there, uh, the big temple, one of the most beautiful in the world at the time, to a fertility goddess uh, called Artemis or Diana. There were also temples to the emperors. They used to worship the Roman emperors back in those days. Big statues, big temples to the Roman emperors. Now, the Ephesian church was basically converts out of those systems. Okay, So they all came out and became Christians. Now, the tough thing about that is these temples to the false gods were often where you did your business. That's where all the trade and commerce was happening. So you faced financial penalties, economic penalties for becoming a Christian. That makes life hard. Makes life really hard. But the good news for this church is that they took it on the chin. They saw it was hard and they did it anyway. And good on them because when you are being alienated from your circles socially, that's no big problem when you have been reconciled to your heavenly Father. And what's true for them, the Ephesian church, is usually true everywhere, isn't it? The Christian life is hard work. And Jesus himself, he, makes, he, he is uh, never trying to hide that fact. In his earthly ministry, Jesus says this, Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, while we may struggle to realise what exactly it means to carry a cross, I can tell you that Jesus' disciples would have had uh, a very clear idea of what's going on there. They would have seen criminals bearing the weight of a cross all the time. Many criminals, in fact, didn't even know where they were going to be crucified. So they picked up this cross and they just marched indefinitely. And I think that's a very good image of the Christian life, isn't it? That's what Christ calls us to do. Christianity is hard work and the work is never done. There is no long service leave from taking up your cross. There is no early retirement from the narrow road. It doesn't come. It won't come. And the Ephesian church knew that. And they persevered. I think Seoul is a very hard-working church. I think many of you who I talk to are working very hard in your paid employment, both for your employers and as a witness to Christ Jesus, working very hard. And this is good because it means Jesus is proud of your hard work. Jesus is proud of your hard work. 
And that's, let that be an encouragement to you. And for those of you who don't like hard work, who seem allergic to hard work, let that be a rebuke to you. I know many people who try to get through life with the minimum possible effort. They glide through and hope everyone else will do the same, uh, do all their work for them. I know those people, uh, and I actually used to be one of those people. Uh, my dad used to, he used to say there was a joke that was uh, written about me. Um, the joke is that there are two guys walking along the road and there's a mechanic shop and they walk by and it says, uh, no help needed in the, in the window. And a guy turns to his mate and said, you should apply, you'd be great. He used to say that was about me. So well done on your hard work, Soul Church. Well done for your hard work. And let me encourage you that every calorie you spend living a godly life is energy well spent. Now let us turn our attention to the the second point, sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Jesus congratulates the Ephesian church on their sound doctrine as well. He says, look, you were not able to bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. He also states that he, they did well to hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. Doctrine, for those of you who don't know, just means teaching. Doctrine is a teaching. Doctrine's not a dirty word. Doctrine's not a word we should be ashamed of. Last year, I wrote a catechism for Christian school students. That's where you teach someone by way of question and answer. I wrote a catechism. I showed it to my supervisor to see what he thought. And he gave me this strange sidelong look and kind of looked at me inquisitively and goes, it's not full of doctrine, is it? And I'm thinking, what else could it be made of? It's a catechism. Doctrine's not a dirty word. And we should be people who actually love doctrine. We should love the truth. Here are a few words from the scriptures about what, the, what uh, we, we see there about truth and about doctrine. 1 Timothy 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine... This is Paul the Apostle. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Doctrine's important there to the Apostle. And then again to Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Doctrine is important. And Luke writes his gospel to us. Why does he write the gospel of Luke? So that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Truth matters. Doctrine is important. And in John 16, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, that's the same spirit that dwells in each believer in this room, the spirit of truth. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So as you can see, Soul Church, truth matters. Doctrine matters. Jesus loves truth and doctrine. And he wants us to love truth and doctrine. A church that is concerned for the truth has a healthy immune system. See, ideas have consequences and bad ideas kill churches. They gut them. If we cling to the truth, soul church, it will save us a multitude of frustrations and trials. And this is where it pays to know the scriptures. It pays to know our creeds and confessions. It pays to know all these things because when it comes to doctrine, as with all things, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. And many of these cool new ideas that you're going to hear around the place, these things that are floating around, these, these really fresh takes by people, they're just third century heresies with thick rimmed glasses and a fake moustache trying to sneak back into the church after they were booted out 1,700 years ago. 
And that's why we need the white blood cells of sound doctrine. And we say, hey, we, we recognise that guy. Get out of here. We, we, we don't want you, any part of you. In an age where tolerance for many people is about the only virtue left, we actually need to be intolerant of false teaching. Jesus commends the Ephesians for not bearing with, for being intolerant of false apostles in their midst. See, the, the, the proper response to heresy is not to sort of stroke your beard and say, oh, that's very interesting, I hadn't considered it that way. Let me have a think about that. The proper response to heresy we see here is you discern it, you find out it's wrong, and you show the person the door, probably quite firmly and quite quickly. But we need to even go one step further than that, Soul Church. We shouldn't just know that things are wrong. We actually should hate that they're wrong. Did you see that Jesus commends, he encourages the Ephesian church for their hatred of the works of false teachers? Did you see that? Let that sink in for a second. Jesus wants you to hate things. He wants you to hate lies and false teaching and bad works. And this may come as a surprise to some people, maybe not any of you, but it may come as a surprise to some people that Jesus was not a hippie. He didn't travel along with his band of 12 bros saying it's all good, dude, to everyone who walked by. Jesus wasn't one of the Beatles who was singing All You Need Is Love. He wasn't a backup vocalist for the Beatles. And although we don't know what car he would drive, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be a beat-up old combi that smells of sweat and incense and just travelled between music festivals. So Jesus was not a hippie. Jesus wants us to care more about the truth than about unity, even. Because if you can't be united around the truth, what good is it getting together around a lie? The Ephesian church was a church deeply committed to the truth. And the Apostle John, their longtime pastor, set them a great example in this. There's a story. A, a, a member of the ancient church called Polycarp wrote this down for us. He tells of John going to a public bath. Now, a public bath may seem like a contradiction in terms for us. Um, you want to be doing that privately most of the time. But these baths were really big. They were like a really warm pool and you went there. It was a social occasion. You cleaned off. Uh, and when John got to the bath, there was a heretic there called Serinthus. And he, amongst other things, taught that Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, more of a spectrum sort of deal for Serinthus. Polycarp records the fact John arrives at the bath, spotted Serinthus, bolted out of the bath and said, let us flee, lest the roof fall in, as long as Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. That's their pastor. That's John. Now, some of you will feel very uncomfortable, I think, about loving doctrine so much that you're actually willing to divide over it. See, the language of division or language of hatred, it actually might grate you. It might not sit well with you at all. And if that's you, let me offer you this clarification. Being committed to doctrine over unity or is not favouring a, a, a set of abstract principles over people. Loving truth is not favouring philosophy over relationships. Loving truth is not favouring philosophy over relationships because the truth is not an abstract set of principles. The truth is not a philosophy. The truth is actually a person and that person is Jesus because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth 
and the life, didn't he? Jesus didn't come teaching the truth. He was the truth. And that's why if you're struggling to hate false teaching, like is being commended here, if you're really struggling to get excited about hating false teaching, what you don't need to do is find your local heretic and print out their photo and throw darts at him in your quiet time in the morning. You don't need to do that. I put it to you, all you need to do is you need to love Jesus more. You need to love the truth, the one who is truth more, and you'll naturally grow to be less tolerant of lies and deceptions. Soul is a church that is committed to truth. And I believe Jesus commends us as a church for that. And let me offer you a few encouragements. First, Soul Church, I would love us to get excited about doctrine. So we're getting into the scriptures daily, maybe memorizing the Apostles' Creed or or read a chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith every week until you die. Time learning the truth is well spent. It's not like watching the news where you can marinate in it for 10 hours a day and then you get a week later and everything you learn is just no good anymore. God's truth is actually true for all time. And we should consume our media and our information in light of that fact. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote that has shaped the way I think about this. C.S. Lewis himself uh, he points things out so elegantly. He said, whatever is not eternal is eternally out of date. Whatever is not eternal is eternally out of date. Watch the news, fine, fine. But whatever is not eternal is eternally out of date. So Christ commends the Ephesian church on their hard work and their sound doctrine. In the midst of this pagan culture, this church, was, this church that was privileged enough to receive the Uh, letter to the church in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul and be pastored by John, they clung to the truth so tightly, despite their false teachers, despite the hostility around them, they didn't grow weary. Jesus loves that. However, we do see in this letter, Soul Church, despite all those admirable qualities, they nearly fell into so grave an error that Christ threatens the very survival of the church. And that brings me to my third point here, a lost love. Let me read to you Revelation 2, 4 to 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, the diagnosis from Jesus is that the Ephesian church has actually lost their first love. We don't know whether that was their love for God or their love for one another or their love for the unsaved. Amongst them, maybe, maybe one of those, maybe all of those, but we know that they lost their first love. And a church without love is a sad sight, isn't it? It is a tragedy when the people who get together to worship the God who is love can't muster up any themselves. It's true, isn't it, that a, a loveless church should be an oxymoron. An oxymoron, for those of you who don't know, is just it's a self-contradictory phrase, almost like public bath we saw earlier. One of my favourite contradictions uh, in terms, a favourite oxymoron, was when uh, Donald Trump said a few years back where he said the budget was unlimited, but we exceeded it. I like that one. Uh, There was another one that uh, where one lady said, "Always be sincere, even if you don't mean it." A loveless church should be a contradiction in terms, shouldn't it? It should be an oxymoron. A church should never test negative for love. Again, 
talking of pastors and churches, the Apostle John actually set a great example for the Ephesian church with the way that he loved. Jerome, a, uh, a fourth century saint, records the following story in his uh, commentary on Galatians. This is what he said, this fourth century saint Jerome. The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but little children love one another. So when John was, was pressed upon for his take on the church, he, he said simply little children love one another. Even though they had hard workers, even though they had good doctrine, the lack of love was sending the Ephesian church off the deep end. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13? Listen, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. See, actually, one of the most common criticisms of the church is that it's a place full of hypocrites. People who say they love people, but don't actually love people. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I can assure you, if you don't like, if you don't like hypocrites, you have at least that much in common with Jesus. Actually, if you don't like hypocrites, I bet you don't hate it half as much as Jesus himself does. Don't let, don't let religious hypocrisy put you off the church. Just like you wouldn't say Guns N' Roses is a bad band just because you heard me absolutely fertilising sweet child of mine on my guitar, in the same way you wouldn't write off Jesus Christ because some of his followers aren't doing a very good job of it. Let me give you that encouragement. So the Ephesian church lacks love. And Jesus actually, he diagnoses the problem, but he also prescribes a remedy. And this is how, and this is big, I discovered this for reading the text for the first time uh, only a few weeks ago. This is how we actually know Jesus was a Presbyterian. Because he gives them a solution, and it's three points starting with the letter R. I think that puts it to bed. It's actually only two of them start with R. Um, but that's close enough, I think. So this is what he says. In Jesus, uh, he says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So remember, repent, and I'm going to say return and do the works. So a church that lacks love, it must remember. Jesus calls them to bring to mind how far they have fallen. Bad habits develop gradually. We all know that. It's like you never notice yourself age from one day to day, you, one day to another. You look at yourself in the mirror, you never notice yourself age. You look at a photo of yourself 10 years ago and you go, I can't believe how young I looked. And that's the same thing. It happens to churches that lose their love. It doesn't feel any different one week to another. But if you remember way back when, it's like pulling out the photo of you 10 years ago. And you go, wow. So this church must call to mind its former love. And then the difference will become clear. So they must remember. Secondly, after remembering, they must repent. They must repent. Repenting is turning away from sinful things that you are doing and turning towards God. 
We should note here, repenting is not just feeling sad. It's not just feeling sad. It's not just being frustrated because you sinned and now you have to put up with the consequences. Repentance involves turning to God and changing your life. Repentance, especially corporate repentance, corporate means all of us together, a church-wide repentance, it hurts. It involves actually fronting up and saying, yeah, we've, we have made a bit of a meal out of this. We have not done well. Repentance hurts. Listen to what Tim Keller says, though. Repentance is like an antiseptic. You pour antiseptic onto a wound, and at first it stings, then it heals. Note again, if you're not a Christian, you might be frustrated when your Christian friends get up the pluck to call you to repent and believe. I hope you see here from what I'm talking about, the church repenting, that us calling you to repent and believe is only calling you in to do something that we ourselves do every day. We wouldn't be expecting anything of you that we are not presently doing ourselves constantly. So remember, repent. Thirdly, return. Return to doing the works you did at first. Jesus says, look, do the things you did when the love was flowing. When the love was flowing, you had the great vibe. Do those things. Do those things. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? The Ephesian church, they have a heart problem. They lost their love. And Jesus tells them to go do some things to fix it. He doesn't prescribe them deep introspection. He doesn't give the elders a week-long retreat with green tea and diaries and where they can write about how to reorder their affections. He says, go and do some things. How does that work? Heart problem, go and do things to fix it. The truth is, what we do absolutely affects the way we feel. The works of the body affect the heart deeply. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about this exact thing. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbour. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find out one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. So that's the path back for the church. Remember, repent and return to the works you did at first. Has soul lost its first love? That's something I'll actually leave to you, Soul Church. I encourage you to discuss that over dinner tonight. Let me bring this to a close. This is my conclusion now. Final portion of the letter, Revelation 2 verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me close with these three observations in conclusion. Firstly, obedience, hearing the call, it's an individual task. Although the letter is addressed to the church as a whole, Jesus addresses here the individual, he who has an ear, to the one who conquers. To change a church, we must actually change ourselves. The flavour of the month is actually to criticise everyone else and leave yourself unchecked. Ever since I got Facebook in high school, I've known people who every year along the way, they think they could do a better job of running the country than the current Prime Minister. And I know for a fact those people, they couldn't get out of bed by 10am to get to their one lecture at uni that day. It's always everyone else's problem. Don't ever look at me. It can't be that way with us. To change the church, we must change ourselves. Obedience is an individual task. Secondly, obedience is a serious task. Note in verse 5, Jesus says, If you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. 
Jesus would actually rather have no church in an area than a church that persistently fails to love. That's how serious obedience is. It's a matter of life or death for the church. And this is a big deal. And I'll tell you why. Because it means the greatest threat to the church is not increasing secularisation. The biggest threat to the church is not the LGBTQ plus lobby. It's not the right-wing extremists either. In some ways, the biggest threat to the church is actually Jesus. This church, sole church, will exist for exactly as long as Jesus is pleased to have it exist. And that means we should pursue our obedience with seriousness. Lastly, obedience is a blessed path. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's Garden of Eden language, isn't it? It's also the end of Revelation language, where there's a tree of life there, and it bears fruit every month, 12 crops. And Eden is restored as God dwells with his people. It's eternal life is what is being offered here to those who hear the call. So that's the letter to the church at Ephesus. I hope tonight, Soul Church, that you received a taste of the soothing and sobering presence of Christ in the church. I hope that you saw the beauty of sound doctrine and hard work. And I hope you saw the tragedy of a church that lost its first love. Let me close with the words here from verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father and God, we thank you for this scripture. I pray that you would apply it to us through your Holy Spirit and that we would leave tonight more equipped to live for your kingdom and to love those around us than when we came in this afternoon. We pray this all in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.